Hey folks, this is Josh Schlossberg. I'm your host of the Green Root Podcast. And on this episode, we have Beth Vertical. She has been researching for years about ways to be empowered during climate change. Former critical mass activist from the 90s, Beth is the founder of a social movement mixed with self-improvement tactics called Own It Economics, which you can find at ownitteconomics.com. The goal is to help people achieve the ultimate paradox, living your best life while fixing the planet. Beth, welcome to the Green Root Podcast. Happy to be here. So you touch on several issues that I hold dear and I think are important to discuss. So we'll start with the low-hanging fruit. We'll talk a little bit about critical mass. And, and for those who don't know, critical mass is a bike ride that I believe is still going on. I haven't really followed up much on it, but uh, it's a group mass bike ride for various purposes. I was a part of it in regards to calling attention to fossil fuel use. I was also a part mm -hmm. of it regarding bike safety. So basically you just ride in a group and it's a moving rolling protest. Some people follow the law, others don't. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about critical mass and why anyone should care about critical mass. Thank you. Um, well, critical mass was started basically just to reclaim public space via the bicycle. The initial impetus was, you know, so much of our urban landscape is dedicated to cars and we're all part of the urban landscape or, you know, suburban landscape. We were in San Francisco at the time. And so why not just get on your bike and reclaim it? We're supposed to be part of traffic. Let's be part of traffic. And at the time, really bicycling was taking your life into your own hands. I mean, it was not a bicycle friendly town. And so to just ride home together in a group was incredibly empowering. So that was really the beginning of it. And then as it grew, people brought their own you know, protesty language to it, but it was never, I mean, in and of itself, in a way, it was kind of a protest because whenever you're reclaiming public space, that's always going to have an edge to it. But that's not what the impetus was. The impetus was to just make it a party, a rolling party. It's the last Friday of every month. It kicks off your weekend once a month. And it was just supposed to be a gathering of people who normally were on the edge of the commuter world to get together and kind of build each other up. And I mean, we just basically rode up the street and stopped off at a bar. You know, mm -hmm. it wasn't that big of a deal when we started. Yeah, that's a good point making out to be, it wasn't necessarily like, uh, we are against this. It's just, we're riding our bicycles and we want to be safe. And I was a commuter bicycle bicyclist in Eugene, Oregon. So I'd ride seven miles to work every morning oh, wow. and then back. And basically I would pretty much every day deal with motorists who were either not paying attention or didn't understand the law. So I was a part of critical mass in a way for self-preservation, just as a way to be like, hey, everyone get used to us in the streets. Uh, we have a right to be here. And guess what? Sometimes we actually do have a right on the narrow streets to take over a full lane. I can't tell you how many almost altercations I got in because the cars think that I'm just being an ass. And maybe sometimes I was, but Hey, so tell me maybe about some, uh, some of the stories that you've had, any exciting things that have happened on a critical mass ride? Well, gosh, I mean, you know, not to overplay it, but I mean, every month was an incredible experience because I mean, you know, we went from, I think it started off with 60 riders um, and that was in September of 92. And I got involved in March of 93. And I think we we're about up to like maybe a hundred, 150 at that point. Mm -hmm. And then within that, 
springtime to summer, it mushroomed into over a thousand. So, you know, every month was just a really steep learning curve on how do you self-govern and move that kind of traffic through a system that is normally about people being in a car and stopping and starting. And, you know, car driving is very linear, right? It's, it's stop, start, right, left kind of thing. But when you're on a bike, it's all about curves. Mm-hmm. You want to keep moving. You want to keep rolling. And then, you know, if you're in a group of bikes, where does that, you know, vehicle, if you will, stop? So we came up with ways to self-govern, like corking is what we called it, where one of us would stand in front of you know, the cross perpendicular traffic to allow the other bikes to go through because to break up the mass would actually be in lack of public interest for our safety. And it was just a second for the car to stop, kind of like a big bus going through an intersection. You know, if the nose is through on the yellow or when it turns to red, the rest of the bus gets to go through. And we thought, well, why not the rest of critical mass gets to go through? But then when it started to get up to be like a thousand and more, as the summer marched on, it got, there was some tension there. So then we had what we called, you know, ambassadors who held up signs. And then when everybody was like, hey, it's been too long, we'd flip it and say honk if you love bicycling and tried to build a rapport with everybody who was waiting. And we did a great job for a while, you know? Yeah, I do think most people are supportive, but there are some people who, they hate cyclists. And I have to say, obviously some cyclists do not follow the law, even outside of critical mass and are doing dangerous things. And they do kind of give other cyclists a bad name, but I think it's mostly that people in their vehicles, yeah, they they get into that steel contraption and then they're separated from everyone else. And so they basically feel superior. The roads are for us, not you on your toy bicycles. And it's like, well, guess what? Some of us are using it as recreation, but some of us, like I didn't have a vehicle when I was living in Eugene, Oregon. That was my way to get to work. I get to be on the streets as well. And yeah, we are more vulnerable users. So we do deserve protection. And then at the same time, yeah, things like uh, the need to stop at a stop sign if you're turning right. And certain cities have actually changed the law on that because you might as well treat it as a yield. You're not just being an ass and blowing through it. You're saying, okay, there's no traffic. I don't need to stop my motion then physically start the bicycle up again. It's it's not the same as being in a car where you literally just do this or that. You have to do a lot. So it's understanding that things are a little bit different for cyclists. So did you say that over time there became more acceptance is, is what you saw? No, uh, not necessarily. <laughs> but I do want to speak to the uh, stoplight and traffic indicators for cars. Um, a lot of the history that people don't understand is that one of the reasons why cars got to have such an easy entry into the market was because bicyclists had done a lot of work for being activists to getting smooth roads back in the day in like the 1890s. So what you had, I mean, they were called bone shakers bicycles because the road terrain was so hardcore. You had non-pneumatic tires and there was no, there was a little bit of suspension on some of the bikes, but I mean, they were rattlers, you know? So bicyclists, Um, became activists to have better roadways, which is what enabled the car to take off. And actually, the only reason why street signs, uh, like stop signs, and then stop lights came into existence was because of cars not being able to work as smoothly as the bicycles. So not to sound too crazy here, but really, 
if it was just with bicycles, I don't know if we would have, I think we'd have a bunch of roundelays at intersections mm, mm. and we really wouldn't have these stop signs. And in fact, you know, critical mass got its name from the phenomenon that was seen in Return of the Scorcher. I don't know if you saw that movie by Ted White who also did the documentary about critical mass oh but this guy named the one yeah go ahead yeah yeah so this guy and i forget his last name his first name george i believe was um in china and he saw where bicyclists would gather what he called a critical mass at an intersection and without any stoplights once enough bicyclists had gathered the cross traffic of trucks and mopeds and whatever would slow down a little bit and create a pocket for the big mass of bicycles to go through so he said you know when bicyclists reached a critical mass that allowed the traffic pattern to shift and so we adopted the name critical mass because of that movie blurb and that's the phenomenon that we saw was very organic really so you know lights and stop signs were superseded in a way by kind of an innate um recognition of mass of one type of vehicle you know? Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's my piece on stoplights and stop signs. No, that's important. And I think the idea of you're having a big group of cyclists and there's a red light, oh, well, we have to stop and wait for the cars. No, no, we're going to continue going through. We're going to finish our tail of the dragon and go through that. I think that was a perfectly reasonable thing. I witnessed that many times. I think it's safer. Mm-hmm. The idea of us constantly breaking up our group and it's like, sorry, no, no, guess what car? You're going to be home in three minutes, you know, like chill out for a second. And of course, any sort of, you could call it confrontational. I, I don't know if that's the best word, but any sort of activism like that, that is kind of a face-to-face thing and is sort of a uh, bicycle in front of a car it does tend to get people upset and there have been some some scary circumstances did you witness any and I'm, we're not trying Tons, to tons all the off. time we're not I trying mean, to scare anyone but no uh, no no i mean it reality. was something that we had to face when we started to get our ride up to a certain amount of numbers um we had a contingency that we called the testosterone brigade that would come in and those were usually young men um you know, early 20s kind of time, maybe late 18, late teens. And those guys would basically use the numbers of critical mass to dart out into traffic, confront motorists, like by banging on their hoods or doing something that, you know, we considered to be violent and then going back into the mass and getting quote anonymity again. And then those guys were the ones that were reported on by the news, because of course that's the most, you know, awe-inspiring let's get some advertising dollars people will watch this kind of coverage right so um so that was something we had to work with forever i mean we had to really we had um what were put out with uh we called them missives and so we wrote you know newsletters that we would pass out to everybody at every ride to try and tackle the problem of people becoming empowered to actually stand up to these testosterone brigade guys. I personally, you know, I'm five foot two. I would go toe to toe with like these beautiful Adonis men who were bicyclists, but they were like, you know, a foot taller than I was. And we would have standoffs because I was like, you know, that attitude is just not allowed in this ride. And I'm not, yeah. you're going to have to face this, right? Like me. Yep. <laughs> and of course you don't look cool if you take a strike at a five foot two woman. So no. they backed off, you know, but, yeah. and then we would have the issue of the cars trying to ram through. I mean, we had, and a tool just for all you bicyclists out there, if you're doing something is um, if you have a car that's trying to ram through the beautiful thing is they have a license plate. And if you start the chant of their license plate, 
and everyone who's on a bike will start to pick it up and chant it out. It just happens like magic. It's like a collective consciousness button. I don't know how it happens, but that car driver will stop in their tracks because they know their license plate. Now you've got a ton of people who know their license plate and it just halts the violence right there. That's yeah, that's that's a a really great tactic because yeah, you don't want to create physical altercations. I was sort of in the testosterone brigade in that I wasn't (laughs) deliberately going out of my way to harass vehicles or anything like that because I knew it would harm the movement and stuff like that. But there were vehicles that were basically would try to edge through and be really, really extremely dangerous. And I would confront those people you know, whether that was the best thing or not, I don't really know. I did end up, and this is not to be recommended and the statute of limitations has run out at this point, but I had a little rod that I kept and basically it was my distance rod. So I believe the law was going to be six feet away. And if a car wasn't, I had my rod, it was like a little fiberglass kind of rod. It was just like one of those flagpole ones. So it was very soft, but it was something where I could just do that on a a car hood if they're getting too close. I also, I carried little ball bearings and I'm not admitting to have ever having thrown any of them. So that's, that's my, that's my statement, but yeah, obviously that, that sort of uh, those measures are not what really gives things a good name. And I personally no. not really no offense. any of that. No, and <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, was, we were very family oriented, you know, I mean, ours I was remember too. Yes. when we um, were first getting our numbers up, um, I came up with the idea of going down Lombard street, you know, this curviest yeah. street in the city. And um, Chris, Carlson and Jim were the two, it started at their office, basically, that was a little think tank place that we used to meet at all the time. And so um, they said, you know, no way, we're not doing Lombard, that's too sketchy. We've got kids on the ride, we've got younger people, like you can't do it. And I said, come on, it'd be amazing. Talk about a photo op, everybody's so invigorated. And they're like, okay, we'll approve it, but you gotta go write it and tell us what your route is. So a friend of mine, and, and then they wanted somebody to go with me. So I would have too crazy. And so I went and um, we figured out this really sweet route that, you know, it had a, a block that you had to push up if you had to, but it was so minor and it was at a good spot. And we, we just knew how the cadence of the ride would go and how it would work. And sure enough, it worked out great. And it was a beautiful ride. I mean, you know, I had tears in my eyes. I mean, it was just so euphoric because I mean, yeah. that road has been on how many postcards, right? Yeah. And now you had the whole mass going through it, like through a crazy straw. I mean, it was just adorable. People were giggling and kids loved it, of course, you know, yeah. it was great. So it was mostly, you know, a family ride, a community ride. And you sure. had this testosterone brigade that unfortunately got a lot of press time, but that yeah. wasn't really the the whole mass of the ride. That was like a small, you know, bad apple kind of yeah. population. But everything else, I mean, otherwise you wouldn't have been able to continue because if people aren't having a good time, you're not going to have a movement right. that's going to go on for, you know, years, right? right. I mean, right. It just won't happen if it's all about anger and stuff. So because sure. it went on for so long, that's a testament to that it was really a party and just a good time, you know? Yeah. And that's what I witnessed too in Eugene. I mean, yeah, I was definitely an angry man in my 20s. And I came at my anger kind of as like a self-defense thing. So if a car, you know, would start to like go towards people and stop and start, then I would I would engage. But yeah, for the I, that didn't, that was a minor component of it because we did have a lot of family thought we had little kids that were being that's right trailers and so we tried deliberately to make it that way um but we did also like listen we're also going to protect you and so we wanted to put that out there but we had elderly people on the ride and um i guess my question for you would be 
how did police get engaged? Because we were <laughs> a very, we were very much, we, we broke the law only with occasionally the running through with the larger group. And then sometimes that we were taking over the streets. Some of the people were, uh, but beyond that, we weren't causing any other problems, but the police got very engaged, which I'll talk about in a minute, but I want to hear what your interactions with police were. Well, that, you know, has, it's had its ups and downs as far as like amount of involvement with the police versus backing off a bit. <clears throat> mm. We went through a few different phases, right? Cause I mean, you know, it was hot and heavy between like 93 and then 97 is when Willie Brown got all miffed about us ruining his limousine ride. And that's when we started to make headlines across the, the states about critical mass. So, you know, initially the police got involved because of um, a motorist got really pissed off because we had the tail going through an intersection and he, I believe it was, he rammed through um, and got a guy on his bike. The guy got off his bike in time, but the bike ended up under the car. Yeah. Okay. And at that time we had more messengers with us who were used to confrontations with cars a little bit more. They had their own culture. Right. And so that car got its windshield smashed with U-locks because it was trying to take off. I mean, guys literally jumped on the car to try and hold the guy because he was trying to get away with basically a hit and run. Mm -hmm. And they and the guy stopped his car. We, you know, bicyclists. I wasn't. I didn't see this firsthand. I mean, this all got told, you know, in the ep epilogue at a bar or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, we heard about it. But um, so everybody took their stand and held the guy there. The cops showed up, of course, and then they charged the bicyclists yeah. with defacing yeah. the car. Yep. And that's something, you know, now that BLM has happened and people are understanding a bit more that, you know, what the cops do isn't always that rosy for the people who may not be within the you know the group that's protected by the law as much as like car drivers versus bicyclists right. you know so the cops took the side of the bicyclist which a lot of us were used to it was just part of the culture that that's you mean they didn't, the way it rolls they didn't take the side of the bike i'm sorry didn't yeah. thank you and yeah. um and so that's when the cops started to notice us you know and they yep. would show up and then they started to pressure us for publishing the route ahead of time so that they could predict where we would go yep. and of course that just wasn't part of our culture we ran by a government that we called the xerocracy so if you had an idea you printed it out you passed it out and then we would vote on the ride before we went so we didn't nobody knew what the ride was going to be we mm -hmm. had an inclination because some route makers were a little bit better at their routes than other route makers yeah. and had some more cred as far as reliability of it's going to be a good ride yeah. but until vote time happened it was up in the air so we never wanted to give the ride to the cops and um and then the ride moved over to being one guy started to want to give the ride to the cops. There was a lot of people who coalesced around that kind of regularity. Yeah. We realized a lot of people just don't want to be mavericks. They just want to have fun and just kind of be in a group. Yeah. So then the ride started to get published to the cops. And because the, the, the ride got published to the paper, then people thought that should be the ride. Then that ride ended up happening, even though there was never a vote. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So then that started to happen. And then when that happened, that bottlenecked the, um, the mayor, Willie Brown at the time, mm -hmm. and then he got pissed off. And that's when the whole thing exploded. You know, it was a summertime lull for news. All yeah. of a sudden, you've got these, quote, angry bicyclists and critical mass who are making the mayor not be able to get everywhere he wants to in his limousine. 
And we had that that press coverage. And I don't know if you're, anyway, that's all in We Are Traffic, the mm -hmm. documentary, which is now free on YouTube, plug right. for Ted White. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so that's the politics with cops there. And then they escorted him pretty much critical mass, you know, ever since, although I heard lately that they really don't, you know, mm -hmm. and I don't know what it's gone on since COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I think the history is really important. And yeah, I, I think a lot of folks just started to learn, wait, the police aren't always there to protect the protesters. And that's like, yeah, yep. well, we knew that a long time. We were talking about it a long time ago. Yeah. People weren't we paying had, attention as much. We had um, actually an incident where we called it the cop riots and it's on the video. We are traffic, but I mean, they just unleashed on bikes and we had people who were videographing because we were having a lot of hassling by the police at the time. We had a special squad dedicated to our ride called the tax squad. They were on dirt bikes, you know, enduros. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, we used to get like, we visited Chicago, a few of us visited Chicago and, you know, heard from people coming over from New York, like, eh, you guys with your San Francisco cops, they're kind of wussy compared to what we have to deal with in Chicago and New York. And we're like, no, you don't know what our tax squad's pretty heavy duty, yeah. you know? So anyway, these guys got on, I mean, one woman, you know, there's a shot, a still shot you'll probably find online, but one woman did have her knee, you know, a, a cop knee on her neck on the ground you know, on, off her bike to like stay, you know, keep her under control. So all of those lawsuits during the cop riots were, you know, honored and they got excused for all their, whatever the cops said, the bicyclist did totally got dismissed. And, um, and we had the video and none of the news, you know, back in the day, we didn't have the internet or it would have been all over the internet, but right. none of the news um, would cover it. You know, we yeah. gave them the video and asked them to show sure. this cop uprising, if you will, and no one would cover it. Yeah. Yeah. Now the media would actually cover stuff like yep. that. But back then, yep. I know that's what I've seen the difference because we were always trying to get people to to cover stuff. And they're like, yeah, we're not going to touch it. And nowadays I see it. I'm like, oh, you guys, I'm sorry you're getting beat up, but uh, at least you're getting some coverage. We weren't, we weren't getting coverage. But yeah, I think it's important just to understand how things maybe have evolved in a certain, to a certain degree and how police do tend to, I think, rough up ones who they know pretty much won't fight back. Like it's pretty easy to just beat up a hippie cyclist, you know, because they're probably not packing and they're, you know, it's just a, I think a low hanging fruit, but I'll, I'll just talk very briefly about some of my experiences because I haven't had an opportunity to talk about this on the podcast yet. And then we'll oh, nice. transition into the own and economics, which will make a smooth transition, <laughs> but uh, just like a bicycle going through a red light. Yeah. <laughs> but so we were dealing with stuff in Eugene. Obviously our rides were nowhere as large as San Francisco, but we had decent rides every, every month of, I don't know, I mean, definitely got into the hundreds. Usually it was more or less than that, you know, a few dozen, a few, several score cyclists. And most people followed the rules. Some people didn't, you know, there were definitely clusters in the road. I was actually doing a thing where I would obsessively follow the law because we were getting a lot of attention and then we were actually starting to get some media attention. So I was part of the contingent. What year of, was this? Oh man, this was late. 2000s so or 2000 mid 2000s like probably wow, 2005. that's awesome okay yeah probably about 2005 so after yeah you all started stuff up and we were continuing we were keeping things going that's so cool big, i didn't know what was going on that long that's great oh yeah and there was a big bicycle culture in eugene so that was oh yeah i lived cool. there for a little bit 
Oh, nice. Yeah. So yeah. you know all about that. And so we were going the rides and I would do a thing where I would, I figured out the law. You can legally constantly be passing people and you can take over lanes. So if there's a cyclist on your right and they're going too slow, you can pass them and you take over the lane and do that. So I would encourage people, let's just keep passing one another <laughs> and we can take over the street legally. And it was safer oh, for us. Hilarious. So that's I was good. So I was doing that sort of thing and yeah, didn't didn't get any trouble. But then there was one time where I had actually missed the ride and then I was getting back from somewhere, unlocking my bike, and then I saw it go past. And I, I was like, oh, I'll catch up. And I and I caught up. I was literally on the ride for about one minute. I saw my friend towards the front. I wanted to catch up to him. I did the legal passing thing. People in the right lane doing too slow. I wanted to go up ahead. And, and I did that. And then all of a sudden, there were about seven cop cars. And they blocked off the street. They just came screaming yep. out of nowhere. And just like, Rrr. and then people scattered. And I was like, all right, I'm, I've just been on the ride for a minute. I literally haven't done a thing illegally. I'm not going to run away. I'm just going to hang out here. And so I oh kind of rode God. my bike down a, down a side street there while everyone else scattered. And then a cop blocked my way. He's like, you. And I was like, what? And I sort of turned my bike and then he grabbed me. And he threw me off my bike onto yep. the ground. I had yep. my helmet on luckily, but he literally threw me onto the ground. And then, yeah, threw me in the cop car and arrested me. And I was like, what, what is even happening right now? And uh, he did let me go after issuing me a citation for disorderly conduct. And I did go to court for that, but then I'll just follow up with my second encounter. Cause then both of these were squished into one court case. So after that, I was like, all right, guys, we really should be trying to follow the law as much as possible. We're getting a lot of scrutiny. So then the cops would follow us and stuff like that. Let's just, let's just make this as family friendly as possible. So I was encouraging that. At, and even though we, prior to that, I was the one confronting motorists who were threatening us. I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to be good. I'm going to be kind. We want elderly people. And there was an elderly woman on the ride and I was kind of escorting her. So I was sort of going right next to her and just talking to her and make her feel comfortable because I wanted her to be there. And also, of course, I knew, PR wise, it looked good to have an elderly woman on the ride too. For all those reasons, I wanted to make that happen. And then there was a, a light coming up and okay, green light, pedaled through it. I noticed as I was pedaling through the intersection, we were going pretty slow. She was an elderly woman. So I was kind of pacing her. As we we're going slowly, I looked up and I noticed, oh, it's starting to turn yellow. I had already gone in the intersection. I knew the law. And then, you know, we went through and probably, yeah, by the time we exited the intersection to turn left, the light had been red, but we didn't even run the yellow light. We went on the green and it turned because that's what yeah. happens when you move on a bike, you're not blowing through. And so we went over and then I got pulled over by a bicycle cop or a motorcycle cop, I don't remember, and ticketed both me and this woman for literally having gone through a green light. And I was like, well, this is ridiculous and clearly harassment and we'll be able to get this thrown out in court. So we went, I, I fought the tickets and the disorderly conduct thing got thrown out because the cop did have video of me just legally passing. So I got, you know, the, the disorderly conduct was thrown out, but the, yep. but the police officer lied on the stand and said that the light was already yellow. And even though her ticket had said, and I remember the language as the light turned green, um, your Schlossberg entered the intersection. So basically it was something that was a simultaneous thing. So, the fact was I went through a green light. She was trying to say that I went through a yellow light. Let's just say I went through a yellow light. 
that's what you're going to hand out a ticket for. And then the judge upheld that. And so, you know, it was a, it was a minor ticket, but it was absolutely fraudulent and false. And then I realized then, well, this is what the police can do to harass. And I asked my attorney, what, what, what exactly happened here? And she's just like, this was the judge splitting the baby. They didn't want to make the police look so bad that everything that they did didn't stick. And so I accepted that. But I remember just being really upset by it because it was just so obviously unjust and it was that sort of harassment. And uh, yeah, that, that started me down a road of police accountability, which resulted in a police officer kneeling on my neck as well. But that's oh, wow. a story for another time. But yeah. yeah, so I think it's important for folks to understand who are maybe younger, who are thinking that all of a sudden there's just these issues with police officers. It's not true. It's been in the past. And even for something as simple as just riding a bicycle with an elderly woman through a green light, they would harass us. So I hope that's getting better. I know there are good cops out there who are trying to do their job, who I don't think would waste their time with something as silly as that. But anyway, that's what happens. Cycling is important. Sometimes it's about taking things into your own hand and, and your own hands and doing things yourself. So that brings us a little bit into this concept of own it economics. So why Lala don't you tell segue. Us. Thank you. Thank you. So tell me about and tell us about own it economics. Okay. Um, well, own it economics. So I basically just connected a bunch of dots that are already there in research. And um, it's what I discovered years ago. Uh, was that, you know, our economic system overlooks um, hidden costs so that, because I had wondered, like, why is the world the way that it is? You know, why is it what I was feeling at the time? Like, why is it feeling so broken? Why do we have these issues of global warming and plastics and oceans? And of course, you know, we have poverty that's pretty ghastly, like not United States poverty, like really bad poverty, like in other countries and down to slavery, right? It's just, it's still here. And so um, I was wondering, you know, since the world is being kept in motion by what everyone is doing, is there something that we could all shift ever so slightly that would just make the world a different place, you know? And I mean, I'm somebody who believes, you know, love is what makes the world go round on a lot of levels, but that's more like, you know, etheric and spiritual. It's not really like where the rubber hits the road. Is there something that we all do all the time? that makes the world the way that it is and we can shift. And so I started to look into economics, right? Because money makes the world go round too. And I realized that everything that we bought has a hidden cost in it. Nobody pays full price for anything that they buy if all the costs were considered. Real simple example is a gallon of gasoline. You put in a gallon of gasoline in your car, I mean, depending on the car and the efficiency and the type of gas, blah, 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 it's roughly 20 pounds of carbon dioxide is made from the burning of one gallon of gasoline, right? Nobody is paying for that carbon when they put the gasoline in their car. Nobody is paying for forest destruction or cleaning up the rivers. I mean, we can just go on and on. I don't mean to be a whining liberal, but I'm just saying that there's all of these hidden costs and everything. If I buy an organic apple from my neighborhood grocer, that is grown locally from a farm that's close to me, that apple does not have the cost of the carbon that went to get that. It doesn't have any of the plastics that were used and any of the parts of manufacturing or the packaging to just get that apple to the grocery store or the rare earth minerals that are used in all the computer systems that have been dug up from lands where there are people working as slaves. It doesn't have 
any of the labor practices that are included. Maybe it's a groovy organic farm, but are those laborers still paid for vacation time, sick time? What are their benefits? Are they living as well as I am? I mean, there's just a huge discrepancy between the quality of life of those who make our goods and the people who buy the goods. And then also all the other stuff, environmental ecosystem, that kind of stuff too, right? So then I started to wonder, well, since I'm, you know, not asking for this discount as a consumer, but I'm getting the discount. And now I'm realizing why I have so much cognitive dissonance and kind of like this little, you know, slivers of anxiety about, you know, when I fill up my gas tank or I'll see a Ad, um, a news article about, you know, Foxconn back in the day with the iPhone and instead, you know, where people were plunging out the windows to their death because they'd rather not work one more day at that ghastly factory. So the fix was let's put up nets, catch the people and then put them back at the factory. So, you know, we hear about these stories in the, in the newspaper that make us go, Oh God, you know, like the Congo with little kids working all day underground for a dollar and these kinds of stuff, but then they go away. Right. And we just get these gossamers of this corruption and this weirdness that's in our global system of getting goods to us but we don't know what to do. So then we just get this like, you know, basically these news stories just get barfed into our lap and we're feeling awful, but there's no action I can take, right? I just have to deal with the fact that somehow I'm complicit in this horrible system, but I don't know what to do. So I decided that I would start to what I call own what I buy. I buy it for the purchase price that a corporation or a company or a farmer says I should pay based on their costs but because the costs don't include these hidden costs, in order to own it, I have to pay for the hidden costs. So I started to research, you know, I started to do a deep dive on, you know, well, what would my phone cost if it were made by people who could actually have a good life and all the plastics and everything? What would my car cost? What would my jeans cost? What would my Apple cost? And I just started to do a dive. Now, I didn't get super granular across all consumer goods. I knew I would never live enough lifetimes to do that kind of computation on by myself. But I did start to get a feel that like, depending on the good, it's like anywhere from like maybe a few percentage points to probably around 10 to 30% and sometimes multiples mm -hmm. of the cost, like a car, right. you know, that's a pretty big embedded cost. So I decided to start just spending 10% of what my net income was after my retirement plan and just started donating money to charities, 10% of my net income every month, just to like get away from, you know, just to start feeling like I'm actually paying attention to trying to live as much of an integrity life in this system as I can, because it's a broken system. So what can I do? Mm -hmm. And so that's it. You know, I just started doing that. And then in two months, um, I started to wake up with this feeling of elation that I had never experienced. I mean, it was an absolute giddiness in the morning. And I had a pretty stressful life, uh, job. I had a, I was a class action administrator. It was um, a lot of business going through my desk. And, um, and I also, you know, I didn't really care for my apartment. I had a couple of dogs at the time and I couldn't really find a really killer rental with dogs. And, you know, there's just a few things that weren't working so well in my life at the time, but all of a sudden I didn't change any of that. I just started giving and I had this like pivotal shift in like my core level of happiness. And I was like, well, this is interesting. Does giving have anything to do with this? So I started to research that. And it turns out it's like 20 years of 
study that have been going on into the benefits of giving. Um, not only do you get to feel great in the moment because you get dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and endorphins dumped into your brain. I call it the dose for short, but you also over time build your health. They did a study with people who were the same age, same geographic location, same income. And they found that people who gave versus people who didn't give had less as an incidences of heart attacks, cancer, obesity, they slept better, less stress, less anxiety. There's studies that have been showing that people who give live longer, people who give have better social networks, and they also um, have a better sex life, which you can probably deduce from all the other stuff. And then interestingly, giving makes you richer. And that one, I didn't really acknowledge when I was doing the research. I'm like, yeah, whatever, because I was just into like the mood thing and the health thing, because I've always kind of been a health nut. But then after a few months of doing this, because I had to watch my money in order to make the 10% go over into the giving bucket, I started to save money like crazy. Hmm. And I actually paid off all my credit card debt, pumped my bank account back up to five figure, my checking account back up to five figures. And I was feeling pretty awesome. My, 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 I started like giving more. I started hosting dinners at my house. I mean, my social life went up. I started, and anyway, so I'm like, holy cannoli, I have a system here. Hmm. I'm going to call it Own It Economics because I kind of went further and I said, well, what if everyone did this, right? And I can go into the money-making thing, actually. I don't know if you want to dive off into that. That has its own little subset of why. But so I started thinking, well, what if everyone else did this? What could the world look like? I mean, could we reverse global warming? Could we get all plastics out of oceans? Could I get done with this whole poverty slavery thing, which has bugged me ever since I was a kid and I found out about slavery in the States? And so um, so I started to do some just, you know, like what's the discretionary income on the planet? And what would it cost to offset every ton of carbon that's been emitted since 1850? And by this time, my dear friend and now kind of adult adopted brother Nick got involved and he lives in Eugene and is on works for the city and he's good with pivot tables and Excel spreadsheets and all that stuff. So we started to number crunch those kind of meta figures about the globe. And I realized, you know, the consumer class, the middle class and above has enough discretionary income to tackle all of these problems. So now what would it cost and how much would each of us owe was the question. So we looked at the entire global population, how many people are in the middle class and above. It turns out globally, 763 million people are in the middle class and above. And then if you take all of the carbon and you know, charged about $12 a ton or five to $12 a ton is like the going rate to sequester carbon with technology. And then you looked at the, how much it would cost to do plastics. We use the um, ocean cleanup model, which, you know, I, we understand big assumption there because that's cleaning up metaplastics and the cost to clean up metaplastics is less than it is to clean up microplastics, which is still under discussion, but I can get to why I think it's going to work anyway. And then also, you know, there's, already statistics on how much it costs to um, help out people who are in extreme poverty. So we made a huge assumption and just doubled that for poverty, but at least we want to just get like working numbers. You know, we're just two people working on these really big thoughts and we just kind of made some big assumptions, but just to kind of start to wrap our brain around what kind of numbers are we talking here, people? And we figured out that it's roughly a hundred dollars a month. If everyone in the middle class spent a hundred dollars a month, for 30 years, we would reverse global warming and get all plastics out of oceans. And then within 10 years, we could eradicate poverty down to slavery. 
if everyone got on board. Now, the thing, the bridge here I want to make is the economics part of this equation, which I think is the part that makes it a bit more um, evolutionary, um, where, you know, I do think it's the next step for human evolution, is because when you start to have a global population starting to own what they buy and have a direct connection with how they have their standard of living, and then they spend money to own each thing or their lifestyle, you have integrity. And now you're taking a hunk of money, a chunk of money, and putting it over into the not-for-profit sector and creating jobs with meaning and taking away from buying tchotchkes because we don't need these passing pick-me-ups anymore. We're paying attention to our integrity and what it means to be alive on this earth and we're creating our own little micro economies right where for our particular life we have a carbon zero we have a legacy you know this is such a big philosophy i'm kind of going nuts here but anyway so i'll get into legacy zero too so we have this whole system where we're now all of a sudden creating another economic reality on the planet where we're focusing on sequestering all the carbon that we've had output since 1850 is the idea because we're looking since 1850 to 2050 how much carbon is that and that's included in the hundred dollars a month and so we're looking to draw it all down by whatever means necessary and then we're also looking to get all the plastics out of the oceans and that whole pivotal shift in people's mental states to live in integrity, to understand the footprint that they have on the earth, and then to look after that footprint and have more of a um, connection there, to not be so mediated, to not feel so anonymous when you go into a store and you just pluck something off a shelf because it looks cute or pretty or awesome, but you actually understand where that came from, that that is a connection that we're missing right now, you know? And when we get that connection back, which is a bit more, you know, Native American-y, if you will, right? Or Native, if you will. Like where you start to really feel your input on the planet as you, not someone else, you. What do you cause? What ripple effect are you, is your life causing? And how can you come to balance with the earth, with that footprint? It's a profound shift in one's mind that you know i've experienced nick has experienced i've had a couple other people check it out they've experienced it it's just this pivotal shift that's so profound and it takes care of so much anxiety because i think we're always kind of like skirting around it so much that there's just this real balance that starts to happen you know like in your heart you know and your brain just calms down because you're actually paying attention to all these little places that you kind of skip over is kind of like a compromise to live in this modern world. I think all that is excellent. And I've been thinking about issues like that for a long time, as have other folks, some folks in economics, the concept of fully costed accounting. So really looking mm-hmm. at all the elements of mm-hmm. it. But I think the way that you articulate that and, and put it into a whole concept in giving us an action to take, I think is extremely powerful because one of the things that I've found a disconnect with one of many things I have to say in the environmental movement is we have, we have the folks who are like, tear down the corporations. I'm like, okay, okay, fine. We should probably, but we keep giving particular corporations money and stuff like that. And then 
if we say, well, maybe it is a little bit about personal responsibility and how we're living our life and our lifestyle. And they're like, you're just giving the corporations power. Like, well, it's That's kind right. of, it kind of ties in a little bit of both. And then there are folks who do just want to grow kale and then ignore what's going on with Monsanto. And that doesn't work either. So no. what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I mean, you're tapping into some stuff that, um, you know, Nick and I have spent hours talking about because, you know, we we have a name for the guilty greens, you know, the ones who don't want to buy anything because it's all just so corrupt. And so it's this scarcity mindset that people get into where I can't fill up my gas tank. I can't, I can't, I can't. And they have this like little world that starts to happen because they won't participate with the commercial infrastructure that we have because it's all so dirty and tainted, Right. And then they're wishing everybody else would just shrink their lives so that we wouldn't have this footprint and da da da. But the thing is, no matter how much we shrink our lives to not engage with, admittedly, a broken system, you can never get away from your carbon footprint being under 8.5 tons because you live in this country. There's a study that shows that homeless people have an 8.5 ton carbon footprint because they're still relying on ambulances that still travel on the roads, that still have food banks, that still have food shipped. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, they're to blame for our carbon footprint, but I'm just saying it's a fact. This infrastructure has an embedded, and we're just talking carbon right now, carbon footprint that you can't get away from. So you have to, in my opinion, and from my research, you have to invest in technology as a participant in this culture to zero out not only the carbon as you move forward, but what we're talking about with Onet Economics that is I've not seen anywhere is legacy carbon. We're talking about people investing in technology, be it you know cook stoves to use methane from cows in villages in Vietnam to looking at, you know, um, companies that are starting to liquefy carbon and shoot it across a particular kind of rock to turn carbon into a solid matter, which is happening, I think, in Norway. I mean, there's all this technology that's going around that costs various amounts per ton of carbon, depending on how much you want to invest in. But what we're talking about is investing in the carbon footprint that has been left by our ancestors. So what we determined was that we have to offset every year to take care of that legacy carbon 50 tons a year, just for the legacy carbon. And then average per middle class and above person moving forward, the ONET economics amount is 63 tons a year because we're taking charge of the entire planet's carbon. And we're also helping those who are too poor to afford it. We're not gonna lean on those guys. You know, we're not going to ask the homeless person to pay for the 8.5 tons. We in the middle class and above who have the discretionary income to do a solid for the planet can afford it. And from what we've determined with research with givers, you actually get a tremendous benefit. So in a way, owning it is an opportunity to kind of self, you know, make yourself feel better with this dump of a dose. Because not only are you taking care of yourself, but you're also helping out your fellow man and taking care of that debt as well. And plus you're cleaning up for what your ancestors gave you with the legacy burden. Okay. I see what you're saying. So we'll clarify me if I'm wrong here. So you're saying, yes, if we can obviously not be living like mega super 
celebrities all the time jet setting across the world constantly and having limos and stuff like that we could probably be limiting our footprint a bit in regards to that but there's only so much you're really going to end up doing if you're living in say the u.s right now and well one example in my own life was i've I've tried to live simply largely because I do find living simply is just more enjoyable, but I would definitely do things that were maybe outside of the norm in terms of depriving myself. And then I would notice a family member of mine who I realized canceled out (laughs) probably in a month, whatever I was doing over my lifetime in terms of reductions. So it wasn't simply a matter of like, well, if he's going to do it, I'm going to do it. It just made me realize, well, number one, there's only so much you can do. And particularly if you're living in an industrial industrialized country, you're a part of all that stuff. And I do a lot, I know a lot of folks who are saying, well, I don't participate in that. It's like, well, you probably actually do. And you don't realize that you're buying into that. Like you said, if you're traveling on the roads, you count on the goods that go on the road. So there's really no avoidance. I mean, I do personally still think we should be trying to simplify our lifestyles. Buying stuff just to buy stuff is not something we should be doing. But what you're saying is that that's all well and good, but we've got to be investing in in entities or we've got to be putting the money back into the system in a way that will create positive change as opposed to just taking it out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do envision there's two things I want to cover. I should have brought a piece of paper so I could write this down when we're talking, but um, I want to cover the argument against what is like a naughty word now amongst active, you know, uh, is offsetting. Offsetting offsetting has a bad tinge now, right? Because it's kind of a greenwashed thing. You know, it was used by greenwashing for a while there. So we're more into saying investing in sequestration because we do feel like it's an investment for the future. And um, there are some offsetting organizations that we have found, you know, have great pedigree. I vet charities pretty thoroughly. Um, I'm going to be putting the vetted charities on my website. Again, it's under under construction for branding, but, um, but there are charities that I've vetted that do incredible work. I mean, and that's something that I want to convey to people who are listening, you know, if, if you're a little jaded about offsetting, there are some amazing charities and amazing organizations that do really good, heavy lifting work when it comes to sequestering carbon, getting plastics out of oceans, and helping fellow humans live a way better life. So, you know, the news will maybe tell you the bad stuff, and I don't, just to get like the advertising dollars or whatever, but just know that there are some stellar organizations out there. And if you dig in, you will find them. And I have found some that, you know, I do give like hundreds and thousands, not hundreds and thousands of dollars to, you know, annually. So I have to believe in them or I'd feel stupid, you know? Sure. So well, I guess that's one concern, thing. I just want to condone that. Yeah. Well, I think the concern and I share it for some, for some of those, I don't know all the specifics of the ones and I'm sure there are some that do things differently than others, but the idea that, that without at least taking a look at how our larger systems are working, the idea of just burying the carbon might not solve the problem. So I think that's a bit of a critique. Right. Agreed. But here's the thing. I think that if you take, let's just say, because this is like the worst liberal, you know, um, environmentalist nightmare, right? You've got somebody that wants to buy the Hummer and loves to go on cruises and, um, 
and everything else that, you know, we can put a checkbox by that we would rather they skimp down on, right? So let's just take that person, but they say, you know what? Fine. I'll own it, but I am going to buy the Hummer. I want the Learjet and I would like to go on cruises. So I'll just, I'll just offset it, you know, screw it. I'm just going to keep living my life. It is my well-researched hypothesis that when someone starts to pay attention to what they're doing and has a direct, you know, scientific researched number that attaches to their lifestyle, like no longer am I the 20 ton a year consumer that is the average American, which interestingly is only 11.5 tons over a homeless person. If you want to get a feel for how much of our infrastructure we are all playing with, but if you, let's just say, let's just, let's just give them a crazy number. Let's say they're 50 tons a year because the Learjet, the Hummer, the cruises. Okay. If they're being held accountable culturally to invest in 50 tons a year of sequestration technology and they're emitting it, don't you think that that is going to somehow register for them that maybe their footprint is a little higher than what may be needed to have as happy of a lifestyle? And even if they didn't, wouldn't you rather have them investing in the technology than not? Because they're not going to change their lifestyle because they, quote, should. They're going to just keep living it. So if we had a culture that advocated owning your life, mm. you're still going to have a net win. Right. Even if everybody didn't change anything, because you're going to have people who are going to start investing in the technology, their eyes are going to get opened. And now, you know, like we've seen this revolution a little bit already, you know, with like green cleaning technology, you know, like seventh generation and all these, you know, whole foods, organics, a bigger deal now. Like once people start becoming aware of stuff, they naturally, I think, because we are all earth's creatures i think we have an innate calling to just do things when we have the choice when we have the room we choose the healthier choice when we have it right and we have the resources right so if we have the room we have the resources we're going to naturally align more with what is better for the earth it's in our dna to be in alignment with the earth. And I think that's why we're suffering from so much anxiety. I mean, you, if you read about psychologists and everything that, you know, more people are having environmental anxiety, right? Because the earth is starting to really hurt and we're all starting to feel it with mm -hmm. fires and whatever. We are attached. We can't not be in tune with what's going on in the earth, no matter how deep and how in shadow it is. We have to be tuning in on some level. It's like, because we are, <laughs> you know, it's just a fact. It's an evolutionary fact. So that I think is going to just get tapped into more when you start to own it. You're going to have to get in touch with what your footprint is on all the levels, plastic and poverty too. And that's going to shape how you're going to spend your money because whenever you pay attention to something, it's been shown scientifically, it changes. Sure. Yeah. I, I think you might be more optimistic than me, but I am not a complete, <laughs> I'm not a complete pessimist and I'm not dismissing what you're saying here entirely at all. I do think there's carrot and stick. And I would say the optimistic side of me and frankly, the side of me that has done research on this as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. Awareness of things like hidden costs, awareness in general. So if you look at 
mindfulness techniques, a lot of stuff is sort of just being aware. Okay, I say these words a lot and I want to work on it. Well, it's not like stop saying these words, Josh. It's like be aware of when you say these words. And mm -hmm. over time you start, oh, now I'm noticing I'm saying these words. And then over time, that is how you are likely to change. So I do think I agree 100% that if people are more aware of all of these hidden costs or even certainly paying for those hidden costs, mm -hmm. that's kind of a carrot and the stick. So and I think carrot, carrots and sticks, I do think are necessary. I do like to lead with the carrot. Sometimes you have to put a stick inside the carrot, but I do think carrot is a really good way of going about it and giving people the opportunity. And I do think deep down, there are very few evil masterminds who are like, I'm going to do bad on purpose. That's almost never the case. I think it's a Correct. lot of times people are in denial, but if they are in a situation where they have to take a look at something, that is more and more hard to deny. And I think that would be a huge step forward if we saw all of those components that are involved with, like you said, buying an apple that maybe instead of getting it from your local orchard, it's coming up from Brazil. Maybe it's a, the same price or somehow even cheaper, which doesn't make sense. But if we understand all of those pieces and, and we're provided with that, I think that's a, that's a really important thing to do. So yeah, I think that's, that's great. And I do believe that people can change. I believe that people evolve over time. I guess we're in a race against time, but at the same time, we have to take the, the path that will be effective. And like I said, carrot and stick, sometimes there are certain things that people need to be forced to do. Sometimes it's about encouraging people to do the right thing. Of course, going back to my negativity, you see COVID and people are like, well, I don't want to do this. And so I'll do whatever I want to spread disease. And then sometimes we have to have public health orders that say, nope, you don't get to do that. Sorry. But ideally it would be like, well, maybe you can see how you just killed your grandma and that could prevent you from being an idiot in the future. So <laughs> that's how I tied yeah. into COVID and made it negative as I always make things <laughs> negative. That's something I'm trying to work on. But so, so give folks some, some specific steps that they could take in moving forward. Well, um, I would say follow your curiosity. You know, if you find that you're a little chapped every time you put gas in your car, then start investing in carbon to sequester that, you know, start investing in sequestering that carbon. If that kind of bugs you every time, that's cognitive dissonance. To me, that's a calling card mm -hmm. that something deeper is trying to be heard here. And by you skipping over it all the time causes kind of like a, a noise right. that, um, isn't serving you and you're going to feel a lot more lighthearted in your life if you start paying attention to those little chafing points that mm. spring up with our economic system reality you know and then when you start to invest in that the other thing too is you know when when you get a mass of people that starts to move the needle over to a certain market like we did with the green products you know now you have bigger corporations trying to be more green to capture the market away from the ones that were innovators and started off green. And now you're starting to get products made the way that we wanted them all the time. Like, you know, I don't know, Safeway is a major grocer 
in California. And, um, you know, they never had anything organic. Now they have an organic section and it's not huge, but it's something. And that's because consumers drove the market. Consumers drive the market. And I don't think people quite understand the power that they have, that when people want to buy a product and they show up in the marketplace, everybody focusing there, the market shifts. We saw it with the smartphone. People went berserk over the smartphone. Then you had an app market that completely blossomed because, and the, the people who made Apple didn't even know that the app market would be such a big deal, but the consumers made that market happen. Mm -hmm. People started engineering for it. All of a sudden you've got apps everywhere and there's people competing for apps. Back in the day, that was all brand new and never expected. Mm -hmm. So just, I think people just need to take faith that it may seem small to you on a global scale, but when you start to act in integrity in the market, it has a huge effect. Not only will it have a great effect on your mental chemical makeup, right? Like this is an opportunity. That's the thing. This is not a burden. Mm -hmm. You're going to feel way better in the moment when you act like this. You're going to be building your long-term health. I can get to the wealth thing now, maybe. Um, it's, it, there's studies done that when people give, they become wealthier. And there's a few reasons why. Number one, you're gonna have better health. So you're gonna not spend as much on your healthcare. Number two, you know, you're gonna have lower insurance rates because your health, right? So that's another one. Also it's shown, there was a study done that if everybody gave more, you'd have a healthier population and the taxes would be less because you wouldn't need as much subsidy to help people with their healthcare costs because you have a healthier population. It's that much mm -hmm. of a one-to-one -one ratio that if you give, you become healthier. And then the other reason is that giving is a way of providing. So if I give to someone, I'm providing to them. And that's the same part of the brain wiring that figures out how to be a provider. So by the sucking sound of me giving money, my brain's going to figure out how to get more money so I can keep giving money because it's all part of the same engine. And they've done studies on this and it's, it works. So, you know, people wonder why does this work? And it works because we're all social creatures. You know, Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, she was um, asked by a student, you know, why, when do you think civilization began? Mm -hmm. And she said that it started when she thinks it started about the time when they found um, some remnants, a skeleton of someone who had had their femur broken and it was mended. Mm -hmm. And in order for that human to have had the resources to mend that femur, another human or a few had to take care of that one. So unlike a herd of deer who just lets the bad one get eaten up by the lion, you have humans taking time out of their life to take care of another human who has fallen for what could be a fatal accident. And she says that that's when civilization began, that when humans inconvenience themselves for another human, that that is our true calling of civilization. So we are community creatures. And we figured out a long time ago that when we lived in groups that cared for each other, we lived a higher quality life while we also lived a longer life. And so Mother Nature has developed an inner chemical 
reinforcement system. So we feel good in the moment when we give to people, we're going to be healthier for the long term. So we keep on giving to people and we're going to get more creative about how we get more to provide. So we keep on giving to people. It's all the way that we survive because we're so part of a community consciousness. So that's our innate calling, right? Like everyone wants to belong to their tribe. Yeah. I think that's really beautiful actually. And I think that's a really hopeful way of looking at things and it's backed in evidence. The idea that our humanity emerged when we started helping one another, taking care of one another, seeing how we're kind of all a part of the same thing. I think that's what we're seeing in the best of COVID, people who are willing to make small sacrifices. And we're also seeing it in the worst of it where people are literally, I will not be slightly inconvenienced even to literally save lives. So we're seeing almost an evolution or people who are embracing their humanity. And we're seeing also what I believe is almost a devolution of humanity where where it's returning to the self-centeredness. And what's what you're saying is that and a lot of evidence has backed this up too. When we're feeling, so when we focus on ourselves, it actually is not as psychologically healthy as the idea of focusing on others. But ironically, as we feel crappy, we're like, oh, it's because I'm not doing enough for me. And so we keep digging ourselves into that hole instead of the opposite. Of course, it's very difficult, right? When When you're struggling, the last thing that's going to necessarily immediately come to your mind is, oh, who else is struggling and, and how do I stop focusing on myself? But they do so, like you said, the studies on giving, there's all those studies on gratitude, just being grateful for what others have given you or what you've, you've been able to access yourself. And some books I'm reading around Buddhism and stuff like that, basically saying there is one root cause for all of the problems and it is basically a self-centeredness. So you're giving an opportunity for people to say, hey, be aware of that and be proactive and to go ahead and you can actually give back into the world. It's not just helping others and then you're being deprived. Like I have less, I have less now and then I'm just being diminished. It's really the opposite is what you're saying. Yeah, I'm saying exactly that, that the truth of the matter is despite whatever scarcity mindset that we've been acculturated to have, it's not the truth. The truth is giving is way better. And I feel for the people that feel scarce. I mean, you know, I'm 52. I didn't happen upon giving just to give until, you know, a few years ago. Mm -hmm. So I get it. And, um, and it's too bad. And I would have to say that that's part of our, you know, our wounded culture as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not to harp too much on, you know, the man and the machine and whatever, but, you know, when you look at the media, there's this phenomenon where, um, you know, violent, um, edgy reporting gets greater audience viewing because we all want to know if we're headed for trouble. That's innate. That's what we're good at doing. We all share horror stories to make sure nobody else falls in that pit that our friend fell in way back in the day right? when we're hunting or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it serves us for our survival to warn each other about dangers. And I think the media does a great job there. Like, hey, there's a dangerous country over here. Hey, careful of that. But all we do when we watch the news is we just keep being told about all this danger and right. we keep getting into this scarcity mindset, like, holy cannoli, you know, right next door, is a bomber or whatever it is, but that's not really true. Today is actually the most safe time 
per capita in the evolution of man. And that's just a fact. Per capita, we have more affluence per person on the planet than ever before. And that's why I know the technology is here to do what I'm saying if we start investing in the tech, that we can have a world that is way more, you know, Star Trekian, if you will, <laughs> you know, where there's no money on a certain, I mean, it's just, we have a, an abundance here and a capacity to unleash that abundance that is just pretty astounding with all of the technology that we have and the impetus that we have. And that I think is really being brought to the fore by our own concern of preservation of our kind. You know, it's kind of all come to a pimple right now. And I just want to speak to the scarcity mindset around masks. You've brought it up a little bit. So I too was um, pretty disheartened by the lack of, you know, community feeling from people who don't want to wear a mask. And um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's also kind of a geek on stuff like this. And um, he said that he had studied this vein of thought called, um, I forget, it's like traumatic, uh, traumatic therapy or traumatic something. But basically what happens in people's minds is when they're faced with an untimely threat, like younger people are faced with an untimely threat of their demise, there's a denial thing that kicks in because they just don't want to face their own mortality yet. And why should they, right? I wasn't ready to face my mortality in my 20s. You were part of the testosterone brigade and was like, screw it, right? And I was like, screw it because I'm going toe to toe with these guys. I mean, we were just immortal. So I get it, right? It's natural. It's okay. But it takes a lot to get outside of knowing that you have that you know, DNA packet that you can actually supersede with consciousness and start to think, hey, I'm actually doing somebody a favor if I wear a mask. That's not something that we really learn until like we have kids and maybe even after that, you know, you have to almost kind of go through the fire of youth and disregarding your own mortality in order to start understanding mortality when your parents die or aunts die or whatever. Some of us got schooled on it a little younger. It just depends, right? But I get it. It's just human nature. So, um, and really what it all comes down to is that denial is fear. You know, they're just, they're terrified of the fact that they might be part of a plague that takes them or a close one out. So, you know, I've got denial, I've had denial, I keep finding denial in all kinds of places about myself, you know, as you get older and do the study of yourself. Right. So I'm empathetic toward it. Um, It's just too bad because it really is affecting a lot of people, but thank God we found out that if you wear a mask, you're doing a great service to yourself and, you know, it'd be nice if they wouldn't break that to help everybody out. But really we do have a pretty good self-defense system that we've realized through the study of COVID, you know? So I say, you know, it's just, it's like, I was watching Dave Chappelle um, do the SNL opening I don't know if you watched that. I saw his and opening. He was, yeah. And he was talking about um, how, you know, there's a big piece of our population right now that is feeling left behind, disenfranchised and all that. And he was saying how he gets it, right? Yeah. He gets that disenfranchisement and that in order to be better, you know, than kind of pushing back on people that feel disenfranchised who called us snowflakes back in the day and kind of gave us crap for, you know, being sore losers that, you know, maybe we can go a step beyond and be compassionate because we get it right. We went through that and to keep kind of holding people 
and harshly, I don't think is going to be the way we get through this. I mean, there's a fine line between accountability and judgment, right? And holding sure. people accountable, I think, is worth it. I mean, this is a place of consequence. I have this shell of a body, and it hurts when it gets pushed, and there's consequence for my actions. But to be judged for that right. is a whole nother level. And so, you know, or whatever I, that's worth. I think that's excellent point. I think that's a great way to conclude. I definitely, over the years as a hardcore environmentalist, I was definitely very judgmental against those who I didn't feel like were towing the same line and stuff like that. Over time, I realized, no, I, I might disagree with them. And I do maybe think that these behaviors are off and their information is off, but I don't need to demonize them as individuals. Then COVID came up and I, I have to admit, <laughs> I'm, I'm having trouble having compassion for people where it's almost a literally life and death thing. But I realized that is my, that is my current place to be right now in terms of I think 100% folks who are downplaying this are, are doing a terrible thing, whatever, having critiques about elements of it. I'm sure there, there's some inaccurate elements that you can critique, but people who are just like, I'm not doing anything about this and I'm going to actually spread this all I want. I do think, yes, they need to be held accountable. I am judging the hell out of them right now, but I am personally going to be trying more and more not to. So it's a great reminder just for me, maybe nobody else listening to the podcast will benefit from that particular <laughs> thing, but I will. But I do think it goes across the board and we can turn it into things around climate and stuff like that. And yeah, ultimately we want to bring people towards us and yes. we want to have compassion and we do want to give more. And I do really think at the Green Root Podcast, that's kind of what I want to get to the part of. And I do think a lot of this is ju just our viewpoint in the world, situations about self-centeredness, whether we really we feel and real understand that we are all connected. And maybe the rest of the world isn't hasn't caught on to that yet. But if we ourselves know that's the case, we have to do all we can to foster more of it. And then, like you said, being aware of that cognitive dissonance, maybe a lot of folks are not and they're going to push it down. But now that we know it, if we feel that, maybe we should kind of move towards it and explore it rather than walk away from it. So I, I really appreciate, Breath, all, all that you're doing. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast to talk to folks and we got into some really important stuff. So thank you again. Anything else you want to leave folks with? Yeah, I want to leave folks with the idea that um, we are in the middle of a very abundant culture, that we have running water, we have roads. Everyone listening to this has an electronic device that they don't absolutely necessarily need. We have roofs over our heads. We have a heater that we can turn on. We have warm water that comes out of a faucet. I mean, there is so much abundance in our culture. If you didn't buy a single thing except for groceries for a month, it's still a pretty opulent lifestyle compared to the way many of the people live on this planet. So if we can just start to embrace that abundance that is just part of what we have, I found that that really gave me a lot of wiggle room in my thoughts to not feel like I was so backed into a corner. I didn't have enough time. I didn't have enough money and all of those kinds of traps that I think we find ourselves getting into with all the marketing and the messaging that we're getting about that we could have more, we could do more and all of that. Not okay. to say that we shouldn't have aspirations and motivation, but just to really bask in the abundance of what we do have. Sure. We have to have gratitude and awareness of where we're actually at in the world right now. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Beth. Really appreciate it.
I appreciate you too. Thank you so much for your show.